0: Hey, thank you for joining us online today. We are so glad that you've joined us. Every week, people uh, from all over the world are watching with us. So we're glad today that you're here with us as we proclaim God's Gospel and God's Word. Uh, before we get started today, we want to let you know that this sermon is not meant to replace uh, the local and biblical community that you need to be a part of and the local church that you need to be involved in. This a sermon is supplemental uh, to you sitting under the care of a local church pastor um, and the care of a local church family uh, because Christianity is not about individual persons. It is about a people. It is about the church. So if you live anywhere in around the Middle Tennessee area, we would love for you to join us at one of our local campuses. Um, if you live outside of that area, we'd love to connect you to a good church. Uh, if you reach out to us through Facebook, through Twitter, Instagram. If you'll email us, we want to help you find a good, healthy uh, Bible believing gospel preaching church that you can connect to, that you can plug into, and you can find life and live sin. So we want to help you do that. We pray that hope that this sermon and these messages bless you and you please reach out to us and let us know how we can help.
1: So we're going to jump into John chapter 6 this morning and uh, look at verses 1 through 15. What we find there is what one, of the, it's one of the most well-known miracles that Jesus performs in all of his ministry. And it's the feeding of the 5,000 as it's commonly known as, right? And the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the most phenomenal things. And in it, what we find ourselves sometimes doing, and this is what we do with a lot of the miracles of Jesus, right? We sort of, in our time today, we've kind of downplayed them a little bit. And there's a couple reasons why we do that, I think. Sometimes we downplay the miracles of Jesus because we've used the language of miracles in our culture and in our world today in such a way that has downplayed the significance of real miracles, right? If, I, if you're a Titans fan and I said the Music City mir- uh, listen, you're all going to learn a little something about me. I like to talk to you, okay? Which means I like you to talk back to me too. I don't like my kids to do it, but I like for you to do it, all right? Okay, so the Music City miracle, right? So we've used that language in our culture today, and what we've done in doing that is we've downplayed the significance of a true miracle. An amazing sports play is awesome, right? I love one, right? I've watched, like, countless, probably 60 hours of basketball in the last two weeks. I love sports, okay? I'm obsessed with them at times, sometimes to a degree that's a little too far, which that is, and I confess that in front of all of you right now if I need to. But, um, but, but the reality is we use that language of miracles, far too often, and we downplay the significance of real ones, or what we do is we explain the miracles of Jesus away in modern terms, right? As I was studying this this week, I came across a story of a pastor who was uh, speaking with a group of kids. He was sharing with a group of kids, and in doing so, he was talking with them about the feeding of the 5,000. And so he's talking with, and if you've ever taught kids, all right, let me just tell you, when you ask a rhetorical question, don't expect them to be silent. Right, you ask them a rhetorical question and they're probably going to respond right? And so this pastor, he's talking with this group of kids about the feeding of the 5,000. He tells them how amazing it was and all of this great stuff that happens, how it unfolds. And then he tells them, and not only did he do this, but after it, you know, there, there was 12 baskets full of food that they gathered up. There was more than they even needed. And so he asks the kids sort of rhetorically, so what do we call this, kids? And one kid confidently, which he was thankful for, right, kind of steps up and says, it's a miracle, and so as the pastor begins to affirm this, this little kid, right, another very confident, concrete-thinking kid, like most kids in elementary school, stands up and shouts, leftovers, right? <laughs> because he's using modern language to sort of downplay the significance of a true miracle. Sometimes we lessen the impact and significance of, our, of miracles in the Bible by either using that language far too much about things that aren't really miraculous or explaining it away with our modern language. As we turn our attention this morning to John chapter 6, 1 through 15, here's what I want us to do. I want us to look at really four characters that show up in this encounter. Right? We see the crowd, and, and we see the, the disciples. We see this little boy who brings this willing offering right, to the Lord to use. Uh, and then we see Jesus. And here's what I want to just go ahead and tell you. This is where we're going this morning. The first three of those characters, ultimately, the thing, the object, the, the, the source of satisfaction that all of them ultimately need, even if it's not what they're looking for, like Brad talked about a little while ago, what they need is that fourth character. It's Jesus. And so the crowd and the disciples and this little boy, ultimately what they need is Jesus. And he's the one that we find that truly satisfies in this story this morning. So this morning, I want to read for us the first 15 verses of John chapter 6. It says this in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing the large crowd that was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Verse 7, Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them even to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place, and so the men sat down, and about 5,000 of them in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You know, as we look at the, the different people, the different groups of people that are a part of this story, I want us to first focus in on, on the crowd. This crowd was incredibly eager right? They were eager to be with Jesus, to to see the next thing that he was going to do. And it says that this, we call it, right, the feeding of the 5,000. It says there, if you caught that as we were reading through it, it says that there were 5,000 men. So this likely doesn't include men or women and children that were gathered there with them. So the likelihood is very probable that there was maybe 10 to 15, even 20,000 people that were crowding to toward Jesus, that were moving toward Jesus in this crowd. Now, just for sake of kind of understanding, getting a picture of this, if you've been to a Preds game up at Bridgestone, okay, the capacity of Bridgestone is 20,000, right? And so you have this gathering of people, this crowd of people that have rushed toward Jesus of that magnitude. So this is a miracle of epic proportions. I mean, the the magnitude of this is is huge. And all of this is, is simultaneously happening because they've heard about the things Jesus is doing, but it's also during the Passover season, Right, Which means this is when they gathered together as the people of God. And what they would do is they would celebrate God bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. But here's what had happened with this celebration. It had gone from a very sort of religious holiday type of thing and had become a very patriotic celebration. Right, It, it had become much like what we would kind of compare to our 4th of July celebration. It was less about God's faithfulness now and more about sort of nationalism or patriotism. And so in this, these people had gathered together, and so there was a lot of them to go chasing after Jesus to find him and see what he would do next. Now, I want to stop here for just a second and point out the reality that there's there's a fallacy that sometimes we bring to the New Testament, right? Have you ever thought in your mind, man, if I could have just seen Jesus do the things he did with my own eyes? Have you ever thought, Man, I bet those people were people of incredible faith. I mean, they were seeing him do these things, right? The fallacy is, is that we assume everybody that was around Jesus in that day was seeking after him and was very, very excited about celebrating God's faithfulness. But clearly what we find in the context of these scriptures is that was not the case. They had gathered together for really not necessarily the most honorable or godly of reasons, but yet still they go chasing after Jesus. And I think one of the ways that we see ourselves in this crowd of people is that sometimes that's very true of us, right? We find ourselves very interested or intrigued in what God might do. Or we've been, we, we, we go to church to appease a spouse or a neighbor or a friend or a parent. And we find ourselves in this environment, not by right motives, but all the while in that environment. That's much like what we find in this crowd here is they've gathered together to sort of, to sort of see what he, he's going to do next. And these people weren't necessarily following Jesus because they wanted to know more of who he was. They didn't want to know him as Lord. What they wanted to do is have their eyes pleased by seeing him do something cool. And maybe they had a need themselves. Maybe they needed to be healed. I don't know. But they were gathering together not because they wanted to bow to him as Lord, but because they wanted to raise him up as a great figure who could do really cool things. And as we look at the crowd, we see, yes, they were eager. But they weren't eager necessarily for the right things. And what we find is that Jesus does something miraculous, not just to amaze them, but to show them something about himself. To show them something about himself. To show them who he was and why he was the one they needed to truly be satisfied. Again, today, maybe, maybe you. You're here to appease a person or to to see what this is about. Or or, or maybe to, to see something cool that God might do in a place like this. Let me just tell you that it's okay to start that way. But don't end there. Jesus is calling you to himself in a way that truly will satisfy you, in a way that amazement or appeasement will never do. God's calling you to himself in a way that you truly need and that truly can satisfy. But the the crowd is not the only group of people that I want us to focus, focus in on this morning. You know, the crowd was very eager. The disciples, we find them, they were doubtful. They were incredibly doubtful. In verse 7 through 9, it says this. It says that Philip answered him to Jesus who had asked, hey, what are we going to do to feed all these people? And Philip answers this way, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him then, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Right, well, we find Philip and Andrew stepping into this conversation with Jesus, basically both saying, hey, I don't think this is possible. Like, there's no way this is going to happen. This isn't going to work out. This isn't a reality. Jesus, I hear what you're saying, but uh-uh, it's not going to happen. All right? And it says in verse 6 just before that that the reason Jesus said this was to test him. Was to test him. Now, I want to step aside for a second and remind you that testing and temptation are not the same thing. Okay? If we think about what James chapter 1 says, James 1 says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, which is God in whom there is no shadow or variation or change, right, or turning due to change. And it says, let each of us, when we're tempted, be sure not to say that God is tempting me, because God tempts no one. As a matter of fact, he goes on and he says that we're tempted when we're lured or enticed by our own desires. And those desires, when they grow and give birth, they give birth to sin. That sin, when it grows and gives birth, it gives birth to death. Uh, the point I, wanna, I want us to be reminded of this morning is that God is not tempting them. He's testing them. You know, the distinction is, is that temptation, which bursts from within the... Ik- ik- wik- I can't talk right now. Ekid, wicked. Wicked, evil hearts, right, that the Bible describes. It says that we're deceitfully wicked. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all else. The reality is, is that when we're tempted, that comes from within us. And what it does is it digs a hole right? Temptation digs a hole for us to go down and get more miserable in. But when God tests us, he does it to call us up to greater faith. He does it to call us up to a greater trust in who he is. He doesn't, he doesn't t- test us in order to beat us down further into the hole of misery. He does it to call us up out of misery into greater faith. And that's what he's doing here is he, is he tests them he tests them in a way that reminds them that God is never far away, but that He's also going to promise to fulfill what He said He will do. He's going to do what He says He will do, and we we see that play out here in, in John chapter six. He tests us so that we might grow and enlarge our understanding of Him, and they're struggling to understand that, and that's why they're saying this this isn't possible. And I wonder when the last time you thought that was. In your own life, this isn't possible. All right, now, now, some of you, it, it's, it, it was with your, your relationship with your spouse. Or somebody close to you, you know that reality for them right now. And they feel like it's not possible for this to change or get better. Maybe some of you feel like the tension that you're dealing with in your home is the end, and there's no hope. Maybe some of you, you feel like, like Jesus has already thrown in the towel, and he's just waiting on you to do it too. Let, let this miraculous encounter with Jesus remind you that there's hope, that there's hope, that your circumstances are not the end, for some of you, your parents in the room, and you're dealing with this with your kids. And it seems like they never listen to what you say, right? I literally had a moment yesterday where I said to my wife, I feel like they listen to nothing that I say to them. All right? Or or maybe you're seeing a pattern in your kids where they can repeatedly are just making destructive decisions. And you're thinking to yourself, I guess this is it. I guess this is it. There is hope. That is not the end. Their their circumstantial decision-making is not their end. It's not the end of your responsibility to disciple them. Their poor decision making doesn't mean that their future is without hope. Because where in the Bible do we find Jesus using really perfectly well put together people? Nowhere. Don't throw in the towel because Jesus hasn't. Some of you feel like this when you wake up every Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday or Tuesday through Sunday or whatever days you work before you go to your job, because you know that you're going to a place where nobody appreciates you, nobody values you, nobody listens to you, nobody understands you, you can't stand the environment and the people that you work with. Some of you feel like this every morning when you get up and you go, what's the point? God's not done. God isn't finished in those moments. And sometimes what we'll do is we'll begin to ask the question, when will I just come to, come to grips that this is the reality and just face it? when the reality is the right question for us to be asking in these painful circumstances is not when will I just give in and say, okay, sure, I guess this is the way it's going to be and give up hope. The right question is, do I truly believe that Jesus is big enough to deal with this? Do I truly believe that Jesus is, is powerful enough to be in me and with me through this? Do I believe that Jesus can handle what I know I can't? That's the right question when we feel the tension in these moments. And this is the question that Philip and Andrew don't ask, right? Philip speaks up and he says, listen, 200 denarii, right? A denarii was like one day's wage. And so what he's saying essentially is, listen, eight months of income wouldn't even give a little taste of bread to all of these people. Remember, we're talking thousands of people. He said eight months wages wouldn't even provide enough for every person here to have just a taste and then Simon speaks up and he says, hey, there's this little kid. He's got five loaves, of little barley loaves, and he's got two little pickled fish, all right? He's got this. Now, if, here's the thing. If he would have stopped there, that would have been an incredible statement of faith, all right? Have you ever been there where you said something that if you would have put a period where you put a comma, it would have been a great statement, all right? This is what happens here. Had he just ended his statement with, here's a boy, he's got a little bit of food, but he didn't. He said, but what is that with all these people? He, too, didn't believe. He had no faith. Again, think about this for a second. These are the people. These are the people, all right, that had watched Jesus turn water into wine, heal a man's son from 20 miles away, right? They themselves had been sent out two by two and been healing and doing miraculous things as they spread the good news of who Jesus was and why he had come. They had just experienced all of these things. And in this moment, they see a big question mark and go, no way God can do that. Again, remember that fallacy that we think they they saw him so it was probably easier for them? Clearly it wasn't. They they struggled with the same thing we do, with doubting whether or not Jesus can actually do what he says he's gonna do. And I think, again, that we struggle with this. I struggle with this daily at times. Right? Let me let you into a little glimpse of, of some of my struggle with this, okay? About seven months ago, um, I mentioned a minute ago, right, that, that my wife is, is expecting our fourth child in the next week or two. So seven months ago, when, um, when Emily came to me, it was on a Friday right before she left for the weekend. All right, she was getting ready to go back to Winston-Salem, to North Carolina, where we're from. She was going to spend some time with her mom and do some stuff. And so before she left, she comes to me and she says, Stephen, I, I think I'm, I might be pregnant. Okay, if you're a guy in the room and you've had that conversation, Okay, it doesn't always feel awesome in the moment, all right? all right? Now, I believe every child is an incredibly gracious gift from the Lord, okay? I wasn't prepared for that statement in the moment, though, okay? All right, and so she comes to me, and then 10 hours later, no joke, she leaves for the weekend after telling me this, right? Like, drop the bomb and, and run, all right? And so she comes back, and she texts me and sends me a picture of a pregnancy test about 10 hours later once she got there and says, this is real, All right. Okay. I did not sleep a lick that weekend. All right. Let me tell you why. This is what was happening in my mind. This is what was going through my head. Right. Two months earlier when we moved to Tennessee, before we moved, we got rid of all, we sold or gave away every baby thing that we had. All right. Okay. Not to mention, two weeks prior to, to this, okay, to that weekend, two literally two weeks prior, we have one of those cribs uh, that our three year old still sleeps in, but the front of it can come up converts into a daybed kind of thing, right? If you had a kid in the last ten years, you may know what I'm talking about, right? And so well, I literally. The Almaville dump over here, right, just down the street, right? I had gone and thrown the front of the crib in a trash can, like in a dumpster, two weeks before this. So at this point, we literally don't have a functioning crib for a newborn anymore, all right? And so all of these things are playing out through my mind. We had just bought a house without this in mind. We, we had just, there was a lot of things that were going through my head. I literally didn't sleep for the weekend, right? I'm going to fast forward for a second just to tell you this. First of all, let me say this. I, I, I think in that moment, I knew a small piece of what Philip and Andrew were, were dealing with, when they, they, they heard, they saw something big in front of them and went, there's no way, right? But I'll fast forward now, seven, eight months to where we're at today. Man, I can't wait. My wife and I and our other three kids, we're, we're thrilled. We can't wait to meet this little girl in the next couple weeks, right? The Lord has been faithful to provide through generosity, the generosity of God's people in so many ways around our church family. People have just been so generous. And we have everything we need and more abundantly more than we ever could have thought we needed. And what's crazy is I step back now and I look at that and I go, why couldn't I just go to sleep, right? Why didn't I just remember that God had repeatedly shown us that he provides faithfully and just put my head down on the pillow and go to sleep? But instead, I was wrecked with this anxiety that was tearing me up because I was doubting what I knew God had already proved himself to do over and over and over and over You know, I think in this, we see ourselves a little bit, but I hope also that it encourages you some in this, because one, we get to realize that we're not the only ignorant ones when it comes to believing what God does, right? We see these people that were uber close, like they were next to, they were walking with Jesus and they still didn't believe it. They had seen what he had done and they still didn't believe it. So we're not the only ignorant ones. And sometimes me, that sort of helps me sleep a little bit better to know that I'm not the most foolish person in the world, right? But also I think the way it encourages us is we are reminded that God is faithful to provide in his way, in his time, every time. Every time he's faithful. It's his way. It's in his time. And we see him do this over and over and over. And he provides in a way that shows that he truly satisfies. Now, now I want to turn our attention for a moment to this unassuming little boy in the story, right? Now, I, I don't know. Andrew may have gone over and just like taken the kid's lunch. I have no idea, all right? He may have been really kind of like a bully about it. I don't know, but we get the impression from the context here. It seems like that the boy sort of is this apprehensive, willing little kid who's willing to say, I don't have much, but you can have it and do what you want with it. Now, I'm guessing, I'm writing this in a little bit. My guess is he was pretty apprehensive because he didn't know if he was gonna get it back. He didn't know if he gave some of it, he would not have that part back. If he gave all of it, he would never see any of it again. He's not exactly sure, it seems. So he's probably pretty apprehensive, but he's willing to give the little that he has. And I think this is a good image for us to see, right? Because some of us think in this room today, I don't have a lot to give. You're a believer and you think, man, there's not a whole lot to me. I mean, how could I help anybody? How could I provide any sort of direction or, or service for the church or for the kids in my own home? How, how could I do that? And we see this story with this boy who, who has very little, but yet he, he gives up all that he has, willingly, right? Willingly he does this. And as we see this, I'm kind of reminded uh, of, of what the Lord has been doing in us since our sacred gathering back a few weeks ago. If you remember, we set aside these few days to pray and fast together as a church family to try to see what it is that God was leading us to, to do, to become, to tackle the mountain to climb next. And as we've done that, we believe that we have great confidence that the Lord is leading us to really address the family, the home, okay? I, I want to I talk for a minute, if I can, just about what that means, Okay. Because, you know, I know, there isn't a lot of abundantly clear plans yet. Okay, I understand that. But I want, to, I want to point out what that means. What that means is that we believe it's incredibly important that every single individual in every single home needs to make it a priority that them and every other person in their home is growing spiritually so that every individual in every home sees that it is a priority for them and the others around them in their home to be growing spiritually. What does that mean? That means parents, you, your spouse, and your kids, it needs to be your priority that all of you are growing spiritually. If you're a single parent, it means you and your kids, it should be a priority that all of you are growing spiritually. If you're a couple, if you're a married couple without kids because you don't have any or they're old and out of the house, all right? It means that you and your spouse, it needs to be a priority that you and your spouse are growing spiritually. If you're single, and let me just go ahead and say, in all honesty, okay, when we start talking about family and the home, it is really, really, really hard to clarify that we don't want to let the singles not be important, okay? We don't want to let that slip by. It's hard to communicate that the, the, sing- the role of a single in the home and in the church family is incredibly important, Okay. And so I I just want you to know that we're struggling with how to communicate this. All right, we're struggling with how to communicate this a little bit. But if you're single, you and anybody else in your household, make it a priority that you're growing spiritually. And then on the other side of that, understand that as you do that in your domestic home, that you would do that in your church home. That you would do that in your church home so that you're serving and, and, and seeking to help the spiritual development of everybody in your church home. Let me just tell you in this room, the next generation desperately needs you. Desperately needs you. And I'm not just saying that because I'm, I think next gen all the time. The next generation desperately needs you. But let me also tell you the flip side of that is that the older generation, wherever you're at, the older generation desperately needs you too. And guess what? Your own generation desperately needs you too. Your church family needs you So that we can grow spiritually and develop spiritually. And let me just say this sort of as an aside. If your spiritual formation only consists of people, the relationships for your spiritual formation only consist of people in your own generation, I would highly recommend you step out of that, add to that. You know the Bible talks repeatedly Old Testament and New about one generation declaring the work of God to another that the things of God should be proclaimed from generation to generation not from my generation to my generation but from generation to generation it's a two-way street where the younger proclaims to the older and the older proclaims to the younger and that can only happen when we're together So as we talk about the family and we talk about the home we're talking about us being a part of one another's spiritual formation and prioritizing that in the home, whatever your home looks like, prioritizing that in the church, right, so that the generations are communicating with one another about the great things that God is doing. That's why we've put together a resource, like I mentioned earlier, this Easter week family worship guide. The whole idea is that we want individuals and families to have an easy, tangible resource that can help you to be growing spiritually in your home. Let me just tell you a little bit about it, okay? It follows a simple pattern that all of us are capable of doing. Okay, this is a very achievable thing. This isn't like a forty-five minute to three-hour devotion a day kind of thing. Okay, this is an easy thing that probably for a family might even take you seven to ten minutes at most. Okay, it follows this pattern: read, read the Bible, pray about what you read in the Bible, and sing. Respond to God about what you've seen and heard in the Bible. Read pray, sing. It goes through the, the, the week, the holy week, right? The, the time leading up to Jesus's death and resurrection. Matthew 21, 1 through 11 that Brad talked about just a little while ago, that's today's reading for it. It's very achievable. And then it gives you three or four things to pray about in light of what that text says. And then it gives you links, all right? This is a digital thing. It's available on the app and on our website, okay? It gives you digital links to YouTube links to songs that you can watch and sing along with and listen to together, even so easy as that if you've got kids, there's a link every day for a song that targets your kids. There's songs that they sing in kids in our uh, soul station, our kids worship. Songs that they sing in clubhouse, our preschool worship. Like it's achievable for everybody at every stage. So easy. I mean, you've got the motions in the videos and everything for them to do together. And if you're a parent, I would highly recommend you acting like a fool and doing the motions with your kids. It's awesome, right? Their, their, their trust level of you will go up quickly so it's so easy and achievable and I want I I hope that you have wins in your home this week as an individual and as families that you have wins in your home this week but I also hope that this allows you to create a pattern in your home where you're doing this regularly daily right and there's there's tons of resources out there that make this easy Oh, one that comes immediately to mind is is one that one of our own church members just put out recently. Brian Dembozik put together this book called Cornerstones, and it's a it's a guide for families to use with kids that has 200 questions and answers. Who is God? What is God? Is actually the first question, right? And it gives you questions and answers, and then there's a parent companion that goes with it that allows you to have commentary to be able to answer those questions that your kids have after that question and. Have dialogue about it. I mean, there's so many good resources available. And we want you to win in your home. So I hope this week you'll use that. And some of you think, here's the thing. Some of you think, like this little boy, okay, I don't read really well out loud. I'm not a very eloquent prayer. Uh, I sing like Stephen, which isn't good, right? Some of you might think that and go, I, I, don't, I don't know that I can do this. Maybe I could do it by myself, but I don't know that I could do it with anybody else. know, this little boy brought a little bit, and God did much with it. Here's what I would ask you to do. Don't test God, but give him your little, and expect him to do much with it. It may be overwhelming. It may be scary, but try it. Try it this week. We've tried to make it easy, and hopefully this can develop a pattern in your own home. Let me just reiterate before we move on that, that as we look at this little boy. Right, The point is this, is that whether it was the crowd who was eager, the doubting disciples, or this little boy who was sort of apprehensively willing to give of what he had, all of them needed to be satisfied by Jesus. And as we turn our attention to him, this fourth and this primary character in the feeding of the 5,000, what we find is that Jesus shows that he satisfies by his compassion and his power. His compassion and his power. Look at this. In in verse 3, 5, and 6, it says this. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples, lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. You know, a little bit of context of what's happening here is John the Baptist, which is Jesus' cousin, a man that Jesus had called the greatest man born of woman. John the Baptist had just been beheaded. He had just been killed. Disciples had taken the body and buried him and then come and shared this news with Jesus. So imagine the likelihood is very high. Jesus was fully man. So he experienced emotion. We know that he wept. We know that he hurt. There's a high likelihood that he was heartbroken in this moment. And he probably wanted to get away and mourn. Right? Contextually, we also know that he had been working hard in his ministry, performing miracles, serving people, meeting needs, teaching. And in that, there's a high likelihood that he probably needed some rest. He's probably exhausted, probably needed to refuel a little bit. And then we also know that he had just sent out these, his disciples two by two to go and, and to minister, to, to do the miraculous and, and to, to share the good news that Jesus had come and why he had come and what he was doing. And so they were coming back to him. There's a good chance. These were his closest friends. So he probably wanted to sit down and hear them talk about the things that God had been doing through their work. He's exhausted. He's heartbroken. He wants to spend some time with his friends. So they go across the lake. And at the same time, this crowd of thousands of people run around the lake to get to him. And he sees them coming to him. And imagine, could he have said, y'all, time out. I need a break. Okay? Okay going hidden in his closet to get away from them. But instead, he has compassion. In the midst of his exhaustion and heartbroken mourning that he's experiencing, a desire to be with his friends again, just them, and hear hear them talk about what God is doing, he doesn't turn away the masses. He turns to them, and he welcomes them gladly. What a picture of the heart of God. What a picture of the heart of God. He's not too busy for us. You know, billions of people, some 7 billion or so people in the world. And you know that God knows exactly what you need where you're sitting right now as an individual. Every one of us. He's not too busy for us. I think about 1 Kings 18 when Elijah is on, the, on top of Mount Carmel and there's sort of this showdown between him and the prophets of Baal. And they're, they're kind of, you know, okay, you show me. You work out trying to get your God to conjure up some kind of fire. And then Elijah says, hey, I'm just going to wait and watch you. And then I'm going to call on my God and he's going to rain down fire. And he goes over and he sort of like mocks them a little bit. Elijah does. And he says, where's your God? Is he busy? Maybe he's relieving himself is what the scripture says. It's kind of entertaining to hear, but he's mocking them, saying that your God must be tied up with something. He can't help you right now. And then God proceeds to rain down fire immediately upon Elijah calling on the name of the Lord. You know, we see a reminder of this here, that Jesus shows compassion. He's not far off. He's near to the brokenhearted. He is what we need. He satisfies our deepest longing, and he's not holding back with that. He's ready with that to hand it to you. But we also see this picture of of how this is playing out. He's healing, right? He's doing something significant. He's providing for them. And he's compassionate towards these people that are eager, but he's also showing his power, right? Listen to what it says in verse 10 and 11, that Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was a lot of grass in the place, so the men sat down and about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. See, Jesus, he takes the bread, and he gives thanks, and then they begin distributing it. And they keep going, and they keep going, and they keep going. Was it like like the magician with his hat and the little handkerchief kind of thing? I don't know. Right? I don't know if it was like it just kept coming and they were going, oh, this is crazy. Or if they were just handing it out. or I don't know how it all went down. I don't know what was going through everybody's mind. But I can tell you this. Jesus was demonstrating his power in that moment. He was demonstrating his power and he was satisfying these people by his power. He was satisfying them in a rich and significant way. He was giving them what they need. Now, let me just ask for us this morning. Is this the Jesus that we believe in? a compassionate Savior, and a powerful Lord. See, sometimes I know my temptation is when I'm, when I'm dealing with sin in my life, I really want that compassionate Savior, but don't want to have anything to do with the powerful Lord. But when I know somebody that I don't really think very highly of in my life is dealing with something, I want the powerful Lord to come out, and I want the compassionate Savior to go in hiding. But the reality is, is what we see here in Jesus is that he is satisfying them as compassionate Savior and powerful Lord because we can't get part of him without all of him. It's all or nothing with Jesus. And so he's showing them that he's compassionate towards them as he gives up his comfort to serve them and provide for them. But he's powerful enough to do that in a way that amazes them and, Lord willing, hopefully leads them to be satisfied by him, not just the bread. You know, I wonder as we consider this story where do you see yourself in it? You know, I think for some of us, our tendency is to look at this story and go, man, I need to be more compassionate and I probably need to just, I need to kind of push on and and be more powerful in the way that I I demonstrate Jesus to people. But I don't think that's the point of this for us. I think where we see ourselves best is in the crowd who was eager to watch what Jesus would do, but they weren't so eager for him. I think we see ourselves in the disciples who were very doubtful, even though they had watched Jesus do these things over and over already, they were doubtful that he could do this that day. I think we see ourselves in the apprehension of this little boy who gives his little and watches God do much with it. I think that's where we see ourselves in this story. And all of it points to the eager desire that's misguided, right, for, these, for the crowd, the, the doubting of the disciples that's, that's proved wrong by Jesus. Jesus' willingness to take this little boy's offering and do much with it. In all of it, what we see is that Jesus is the only one that could satisfy all of them. And I would tell you today, Jesus is the only one that can satisfy any of us. No matter what we're looking for in coming to church, no matter what we think God's capable of doing or not, no matter how apprehensive we are about giving him the little that we have, Jesus is the only one that can satisfy. This morning, I hope that as we look at, at this story, this encounter, this amazing thing that God does, that hopefully you've seen and you're hearing that wherever you're at and whatever you're looking for, that Jesus, Jesus is the only one that can truly satisfy. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the way that you do provide uh, over and over and over and over. You show how you provide. And this morning, I pray. God, I pray that we would trust you in that. God, I pray that we would find ourselves as those that are eager to to see what you might do next, but missing the object of what you've called us to, you. God, help us to see that Jesus, in our eager desire to see what you do, that we would see Jesus as the one who satisfies. Lord, in, in our doubting, in our mistrust of you, help us to catch a glimpse, the Father, that that you are faithful, that you provide, that you give as we need, and more. God, in our doubt, in our fear, in our anxiety, in our pride, in our arrogance, would you show us that Jesus is the one that satisfies. Lord, in our apprehension about giving the little that we have for you to use, Lord, would you lead us to put our eyes on Jesus, the one who truly satisfies and trust that you do what you say you do. Lord, in all of this, I pray that our hearts would be enriched, that our understanding of you would grow because we've seen Jesus today. We've seen his work through your word. God, we've experienced his work in our own hearts. And because of that, Father, we would be people that demonstrate you to the world. Because we fixed our eyes on Jesus, the only one that satisfies God. Lead us to repentance if it's anything else that we're looking to to satisfy us. And would you remind us today that it's Jesus. It's only Jesus that satisfies. It's in his name that we pray together. Amen. And during this time, I want to give you a chance. I want you to have a chance to respond. And as you do, here's the thing. That's going to look the same for everybody. For some of you, that's going to be just sitting and praying and speaking to the Lord and considering your own heart and where it's at. For some, it's going to be turning to your neighbor, a family member, a spouse, a friend, and saying, hey, listen, I'm struggling with doubt And letting them pray for you. For some, it's going to be a conversation after the service, next steps. Whatever it is, I pray that you would let the Lord lead in you as you respond faithfully. Listen, there's not a moment of our lives where we're not called to respond to what God's doing. Including this one. So I don't know what that looks like for you. But my hope is that you would remember today that only Jesus satisfies. And you would respond to that truth in your life appropriately. I also hope that as we prepare to give and worship through giving, even if it's a little, you would expect God to do much with it. Maybe today God would loosen your grip a little bit more on what you hold on to tightly and lead you to give abundantly, knowing that he can do much with even, even a little. All right. So as we worship together, you respond as God leads.